You're listening to ReachMD. The following episode was produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and the American Gastroenterological Association. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Coming to you from the third annual Crohn's and Colitis Congress in Austin, Texas, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me to walk through some of the hottest bench-to-bedside research updates being discussed at this year's Congress is Dr. Maria Abreu, Professor of Medicine and Microbiology and Director of the Crohn's and Colitis Center at the University of Miami. Dr. Abreu, welcome. Thank you. So just to start off, I'll ask you the broad question first, sort of the million-dollar question, and that is what research updates in general have garnered a lot of attention, at least gotten on your radar, you know, this year and at this Congress? Do they hover around a, a similar basic science category, or are they across the board? That's a, that's a great one. I mean, I'm always turned on by the microbiome and all the implications of manipulating the microbiome in any number of ways to treat IBD, in some direct ways and some indirect ways like diet and, and all that. Yesterday, a colleague of mine, Dr. Jonathan Braun, who's now at Cedars-Sinai, uh, extraordinarily accomplished scientist. He's a pathologist and actually had been head of pathology at UCLA and is now at Cedars-Sinai just down the street. And we co-organized a session and we, and it's his brainchild really, you know, um, having to do in a way in, in, in intercalating the brain and pain and the microbiome as it relates to IBD. So it's kind of a novel perspective. And we had, you know, senior people speaking on topics that we kind of knew what to expect. And also we had, as you know, these sessions have in, have also abstracts that were the highest rated abstracts. And the way it actually works behind the scenes is we're given the highest rated abstracts and, we, and we're allowed to pick from those abstracts to decide which ones fit our session right? So we picked ones, but we wouldn't have known what, what exactly they were going to talk about. And it was just a, a fantastic session because it fired on all cylinders, really kind of, um, I almost feel like we, like the cure for IBD is knowable. If we could get all this brain power, you know, we talk about network analysis and all these things, but the there's so much information. If someone were smart enough to put it all together, right, we could kind of unlock, unlock some of the secrets. So in this session, you know, starting in, in, in no particular order, there are people who are still interested, I shouldn't say it that way, but who, are, who, who study that lining of mucus that is at least one barrier to the penetration of bacteria and other things into the epithelium and into the gut, right? And you can imagine that if you've ever looked at a picture of what the endoscopy looks like in IBD, it looks like somebody is eating the tissue. Or it looks like, you know, there's, there's a, a, yeah, an attack going on. Um, and so it makes sense that if you've got a problem in that, in that fence, right, in that, you know, in kind of that barrier created by mucus, that there could be problems. And not surprisingly, you know, um, a particular investigator who has been working on this for a while is using genetic models to, um, you know, mess up your mucin mess up that lining and showing that you can get spontaneous inflammation and it, you know, worsens cancer risk and all this sort of stuff. So I kind of think that there's that, that, that I mentioned that because I think that if we're ever going to really do a better job of treating IBD, we've got to tackle all the different um, things that go awry, even if it's only going to be taking care of one part of the, of the story. You know, we focus a lot on the immune response, uh, which most of the drugs that you know that that we're that we use for the treatment of IBD are directed at that, and we need more drugs that are directed at making that picket fence you know stronger. Um, there was a very there were lots of great microbiome related talks that were given in this session. 
Uh, one of them is from a young guy, Jonathan Jacobs at UCLA, who has uh, some a, a very interesting cohort. Um, he's followed their patients with IBD, right? That and and you know it's well known that people with IBD have an abnormal microbiome, right? But he also has healthy, unaffected relatives of those IBD patients, so that these are people that, in theory, are at a higher risk of developing IBD, but they don't have it, right? Because one of the conundrums for us is the chicken and egg problem, the chicken and egg problem, which is to say that if uh, once they have IBD, um, the microbiome goes awry. And so, therefore, is it really that the microbiome is the, prob- is the initial problem, or is it just a consequence of having inflammation, right? So he took these healthy first-degree relatives and divided them into two groups, those that had a microbiome that looked kind of like the IBD people, but they didn't have IBD, and those that had a microbiome that uh, was more like a healthy person. And if he used that microbiome of the, uh, he called it like type 1 and type 2 microbiome, but the microbiome that looked like the IBD person, but they don't have IBD, and transferred it into germ-free mice, he could see that there was the beginnings of a problem in these mice, mm-hmm. that they were, they were susceptible to developing inflammation. Again, suggesting that, um, that, uh, that microbiome really can play, I don't want to say quite a causal role, but almost a simultaneous role uh, in, de- in, the, in developing IBD. And we focus a lot on bacteria. Uh, it became it became not quite trivial, but much less difficult to sequence um, s- sequence bacteria. We usually do 16S sequencing, and and the cost has come way down, like a lot of sequencing costs, to describe like who's living in the gut in terms of you know molecularly. Although we still have this big gap of doing functional studies of that of those bacteria. But what has been less studied are viruses and fungus, right? And so we also coexist with a lot of fungi. Um, and uh, Ilyan Eliev, who's at Cornell, he, and then he had also a postdoc, spoke about um, how in IBD patients, actually, they also have dysbiotic fungi. It's not just only about bacteria. There's a disruption in normal fungi and less diversity in normal fungi. And... Um, and he's gotten a hold of the samples collected from patients who were in a clinical trial of, of fecal microbial transplant for ulcerative colitis. There was a very, you know, this is now not, not new news, but where um, these patients with UC got fecal transplants, they got better, some didn't, some did. And, and he's finding that at, at baseline, some of the people who have the most abnormal fungi to start are the ones less likely to respond. So that maybe there are predictors in, the, in, that, in that world, in that kingdom, of who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. So um, not necessarily a smoking gun per se, but, but maybe an important contributor more, that has been overlooked exactly among right. others. Fascinating. Yeah. You said it better than I did. <laughs> Absolutely right, that that's been overlooked. Um, a friend and colleague, Iris Dotan, came from Israel, and she gave a talk on diet. Uh, that's always the holy grail. That's ho- the, the holy grail. I probably would summarize her talk as saying we should all be on a Mediterranean diet, uh, and that maybe in the context of IBD we could do using microbiota analysis some more personalized. Like for you, you got to eat a lot of apples, and for the other person, you got to eat a lot of nuts. Mm-hmm. You know that we could, you know, jumpstart it a little bit because just diet 
at least for now, is an adjunct to the treatments that we use for IBD. Um, I, uh, there are two kind of neuro-related talks that I'm going to mention, and then, then I'll shut up. <laughs> One is that a colleague of mine at the University of Miami has very interesting data in mice, and to some extent in some of the samples that we've provided her, that opioids worsen IBD, that opioids worsen IBD. So um, most of her studies are, are using hydromorphone has the strongest effect, which is commercially known as dilaudid. And in mouse models, if you give mice dilaudid, you know, hydromorphone, they get, they get intestinal inflammation and they have translocation of bacteria and, 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 and you know, more permeability in their gut. And if you layer on a chemical that causes inflammation, these animals get very sick, so many of them die. Um, and that's important because a lot of studies have shown that there's a higher rate of mortality in IBD patients on opioids, which we always ascribed to their sicker, their sicker patients and therefore, ergo, they're going to die more often. But it could very well be the case that, in fact, it's actually worsening the disease. And so the clinical implications of that are huge. The first thing that a patient flaring from their IBD gets is hydromorphone in the ER. So this is, this is I think, um, I often now, often use it when I'm talking to patients about why we really n need not to use narcotics as, as the way to treat IBD. And, 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 I, and I understand that they're suffering and I understand all that, but I think that this is why we're making them worse or one of the, one of the things. And then the last thing I'll tell you about is that Emmerin Mayer, who's a genius, and has uh, always been in, in, interested in neurogastroenterology um, as it relates mostly to irritable bowel syndrome and really making it, um, really trying to, to understand the biology of what's happening in the brain in patients with IBS, is now applying a lot of that to IBD patients. And has shown that if you do PET scanning, functional, or fu excuse me, functional MRIs on these patients with IBD, and I think he used ulcerative colitis as a cohort, their brain signaling is different. You know, there are parts of their brain that are much more active, um, like, you know, like a muscle that you've pumped up because of so much signaling. And that, um, that there are certain phenotypes of people that, you know, have a lot of neuroses uh, and there are ways to measure that, actually, to have a, a measure of how, how neurotic you are. And that sounds like, like, a, like a, we're saying they're crazy. They're not. It's, it's biology. It's, you know, how you react to stressors that actually ha have more frequent flares because of it. So I think that that's another huge thing. Every patient I see says, stress makes my disease worse, mm -hmm. right? And we say, ah, that can't be. But it, but it can be. Mm -hmm. uh, we just never were intelligent enough to find that link. Yeah. So I learned a lot. What do you think is most instantly translatable into changing clinical practice paradigms? I mean, certainly from your vantage point, you were looking at uh, the potential effect that opiates can play mm -hmm. in worsening inflammation, saying, I need to start changing my recommendations fast. Mm -hmm. um, were there any of these studies that, that were sort of jaw-dropping for you that made you say, huh, we got to move in on this really quickly? Right. <laughs> uh, well, I think... You know, there's the difference between something that really seems amazing and the things that are more quickly actionable. And the more quickly actionable, of course, you know, avoidance of opi opioids, uh, it would be one. But I think the other thing that we could be doing immediately is, you know, at least in the IBS world, there's some reversibility of that of those brain patterns when you have cognitive behavioral, th you know, therapy for these patients. And I think that 
that we, we you know, we offer it in our, in our clinic, but, you know, for most gastroenterologists, it's very difficult to, to, you know, they need to set up ways that to send people to therapists, to send people to psychiatrists, because I suspect that getting their anxiety better will also help deter flares. Um, I also think people, many patients, every patient wants to know what they should eat, but not many patients want to change their behavior even when you tell them that what they should eat. And not to mention that so many doctors will say, oh, you know, you can eat whatever you want. I mean, I hear that still from my patients that they could eat whatever they want. And they can't. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I don't want to throw away all these very expensive, you know, biologics if, if the person isn't going to kind of meet us halfway and try to do something to complement that by having some control over their diet, right? Uh, we just finished a study that we've submitted and, you know, for publication, but with in ulcerative colitis patients, we did a diet intervention study. But what I wanted to say to you is at baseline, people were eating crap, yeah. absolute crap. Like there was almost no consumption of fruits and vegetables at baseline. So and standard we, American diet is what you're telling me. It was a standard American <laughs> diet. And actually we called our, we called, we had two groups, you know, Matt, we had a low fat diet group and we had what we called a, an, a standard American diet group. We had, to re- we had to revise that and call it an idealized standard American diet because it was so much healthier than what everyone was eating at baseline or what most people were eating at baseline. So we have a long way to go. Again, even when patients tell you, oh, they want to change their diet, they, 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 they don't mm-hmm. because it's hard. It's hard. Um, it, it makes it particularly daunting in that, in that area. Where do you think the, the buck stops um, for the specialist in IBD versus um, other members of a multi-specialty uh, group to be able to really take the reins on helping patients through issues such as that? Well, what we're, we're not paid for talking to patients like we should be, right? And things like dietitians and psychologists are not easily paid for. And so um, it's not entirely, you know, as you said, it takes a village, actually, to take the best care of IBD patients. I think that for clinicians, um, they could make a virtual village. They could make a virtual village. I try to identify someone that is a dietitian in their community that has some knowledge, you know, because, again, there are so many quacks in every field. Um, someone who can deal with cognitive behavioral therapy for stress for a lot of these patients. That's, you know, that's kind of a, like, low-lying fruit for these people um, because, our time is taken up by fighting with insurance to get p- approval for drugs and, 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 and um, uh, dwindled away from what really matters most, which is getting people better. So it does take a village. And I think that uh, in all of our villages, we need to have uh, you know, good dietary support. Uh, we're working on ways to try to deliver that by Skype, hmm. you know, by, you know, so, that, uh, so that we can try to fill that gap. You're in a unique position as uh, an expert in both the both bench research level and the clinical research level and the clinical care level, so triple threat. Um, you have a great vantage point on seeing bench research um, catapulting over to clinical outcomes changes and, and changing the paradigms of how we care. But let's flip it around. Um, as somebody who sits in all those chairs, how are the clinicians and the input coming from the experts in the field at this Congress feeding back on being able to improve the bench research for the basic scientists here? I think that's huge. I, I mean, I view that that's a niche for this Crohn's and Colitis Congress is to have more intimacy and have basic researchers come and hear what the clinical challenges are. We certainly have a lot of them. I mean, there's just a lot to work on. 
And it makes me so excited to see like young people excited about the field. And, you know, yesterday I went through the poster session and there was a lot of energy there and that's what we need. Um, I'm always humbled when I give talks to graduate students or to medical students that they have like the best questions because they ask very fundamental questions that you kind of thought, oh, I never thought about that. <laughs> and so we need more people like that to have those aha moments. And I think they're here learning what the challenges are, like all the gaps we have in our care, uh, all the shortcomings of the, of the drugs that we currently have. So I hope that they've learned by osmosis at this meeting. Well, I very much want to thank my guest, Dr. Maria Abreu, for joining us to talk about some of the key takeaways from the bench and clinical research arenas. Dr. Abreu, is fantastic talking thank to you. you. Thanks thank again. You, for ReachMD, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This program was brought to you in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and the American Gastroenterological Association. If you missed any part of this discussion or to find others in this series, visit ReachMD.com foundation, where you can be part of the knowledge.